Today's reading is from Mark chapter 14, verse 1 to 26. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them at any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room? Where may, where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my body of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
Good morning, I'm Colin. I'm the pastor at Trinity Church Woodcroft. Well, how are you going with all these COVID-19 restrictions? Uh, imagine if you could go back, say, a month ago, and knowing what you know now about all the restrictions that are in place, you know, stuff you can't get at the shops and places you can't go to eat, what would you do differently? Uh, what shopping would you stock up on? And what about eating out, if that's something you normally do? Um, what would be the last meal you went out for before everything closes? Our last night out, um, before all the closures, couldn't have been better. We went to the Faulty Towers, the dining experience, where you have a meal in a, like a hotel and you get the, to experience all the mayhem of Basil and Sybil and Manuel up close going on around you. And if that was our last meal out ever, I'd be pretty happy with that. Well, today we're looking at a couple of meals that Jesus has. See, and ever since chapter 8, Jesus has been saying that to do his job as God's rescuer king, the Messiah, he must be rejected, suffer, be abandoned by his friends, betrayed and killed, and then rise again. And he's deliberately set his face to Jerusalem, where he knows all of this is going to happen. So Jesus knows that this Passover meal that he has with his disciples is going to be his last meal before his crucifixion. So what would you say to the people closest to you if you knew it was your last meal together? I think what you said would tell us about what you thought was most important, wouldn't it? Well, here we have a front row seat to see what Jesus, God the Son, God himself on, on earth as a human, what he thinks is the most important thing for us to hear. But before this last meal, there's a, another meal that, that kind of sets the ball rolling, acts as like a prologue for all that's about to happen. And there's a, an outline for this talk in the notes tab, but it's this, it's a, a meal interrupted, a meal repurposed, and then briefly, a meal to look forward to. Interrupted, repurposed, to look forward to. Three meals. So first, Jesus is at a meal before his last one, and it's a meal interrupted. But before we get into it, let's have a helicopter look at this chapter. See, the way Mark structures it is we've got interleaved with faithful response to Jesus and his own faithfulness to his mission. We've got, in alternating layers with that, we've got, opposition and betrayal of Jesus, all the moves that move Jesus towards his death and to increase in isolation. So that picture is it's probably too small to see the writing, but it gives you the idea of marked all the negative bits in red. And the other thing Mark really wants us to know is it was Passover. Five times he mentions the word Passover. As we heard in the kids talk, Passover was the, the festival that Israelites um, where they remembered the beginning of Israel's delivery from slavery, where God brought judgment by killing the firstborn in every Egyptian household, but passed over the Israelite houses where the blood of the Passover lamb sacrificed for them had been painted on the door frames. So Mark is making sure that we've got in mind as we read this narrative, this framework of sacrifice, of one life taking the place of another, got that framework of redemption and rescue from slavery in mind. 
So whereas last week we saw Jesus reject the temple as having anything to do with God anymore, this week uh, he's making use of the Passover to show that it's still relevant. It's kind of the marinade in which all these ingredients sit. And the other thing about Passover was that it meant that Jerusalem was absolutely chockers, packed out. You know when you go to Westfield Marion at Christmas and you have to park on the moon because it's so busy? Well, it was busier than that. You know, the population increased sixfold for the Passover festival. And this was making life difficult for the religious leaders who, verses 1 and 2, fulfilling what Jesus said, are plotting to kill him. I mean, how do you do in the most popular guy in town at the busiest time of year? And they're worried about a riot. If there's a riot, the Romans will come down on them like a ton of bricks. It's a problem they've got. Problem we'll see has a heartbreaking solution. But back to this first meal. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came in with an alabaster jar of perfume, very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Now, naming conventions are obviously not too kind yet. You know, Simon the leper's house. If it, I'd be living at Colin the Bald's house. And some there are really cross about what this lady's done. Verse 4. Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Like if this was someone um, on minimum wage in Australia, that's a $38,500 bottle of perfume. Like the extravagance is incredible, isn't it? And she's broken the jar. She's determined that Jesus gets every last drop of it. But Jesus defends her. Verse 6, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about the poor. His point is that those gathered are already capable of helping the poor with or without this perfume. But the truth is Jesus is the king of the whole universe. Uh, what she's done is appropriate. And we're still talking about her. Because it seems she was the only one around who really understood that Jesus coming as a rescuer king meant they had to go to his suffering and death. And she's a prime example of the miscellaneous people that we meet in Mark. People who show us the ideal response to Jesus. So what can we learn from her? Well, what she did, she did for Jesus. What she did, she did for Jesus. And Jesus said, she's done a beautiful thing to me. She's a great example for us as we think about our own worship and service. Are we doing it for Jesus or for something else? Maybe to tick a box, to get someone off our back, to get an emotional high, or because it's what we think we ought to do. Well, those reasons will soon get pretty dry pretty soon, and we'll get bitter about doing them. 
we get bitter about our service. It's like um, self-isolating for coronavirus, you know. I reckon lots of us are maybe dubious about the benefits of how much we're restricted. But on the whole, we're going along with it, because, not because we're virologists, but because we care about the vulnerable. We're doing it for them. Jesus is interested in worship and service that comes from the heart, comes from love for him. Not loving him just for the thing, for what he does for us, although he does so much, but loving him just for who he is, because he's our king, worthy of our love. And when we do that, our service will be full of joy and will persevere through tough times. So she did it for Jesus, and verse 8, she did what she could. Jesus says, literally, what she had, she did. She didn't do what she couldn't, and neither Jesus nor her are worried about that, but she wholeheartedly gave everything she had about her over to Jesus for his sake. And the fruit of that was beyond her imagining. I don't reckon she thought we'd still be talking about her today. We're stuck online at the moment, aren't we? And this isn't really, really is not the way we'd choose to do a service. And we'd much, back, much rather go back to having never heard of Zoom meetings uh, rather than having one nearly every day. But this that we're going through, none of it is a surprise to God, is it? And we trust that not only will he, will this not stop his purposes, we can trust that God will use this to grow his kingdom, to grow us in ways that we never planned or imagined. So don't worry about what you can't do. Just do what you can do and do it for Jesus. Do what you can do and do it for Jesus. Anyway, what this woman has done has been the last straw for Judas, who, verse 10, goes off and betrays Jesus. And Judas is kind of an archetype of what happens when we lose sight of Jesus, loving Jesus and serving him out of love for him, and get overly concerned with what Jesus can do for us in the here and now. And we read in verse 18, Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him, but that doesn't stop him verses 12 to 16, from arranging his and the disciples' last meal together. Now, this room booking, was it supernatural? Or maybe Jesus uh, heard his mum Mary telling him all the stories about when he was born and learned the importance of booking ahead in small towns at busy times. Well, what's clear is that Jesus is deliberately heading to Jerusalem to face what he must and making all the arrangements to make that happen. And so preparations made, he meets the disciples for the Passover meal. And it's a meal repurposed, a meal repurposed. Jesus is repurposing or fulfilling this Passover meal to make it something unexpected. Now, here's some uh, good examples of repurposing. Got a suitcase turned into a bathroom cabinet or a tennis racket as a mirror. And we've got a washing machine drum turned into a fire pit. The Passover meal was about remembering God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt and looking forward to the Messiah restoring God's people to glory. But Jesus is repurposing this meal 
to show how his death is going to rescue us from slavery to sin and death and look forward to eternal life. Jesus is using this meal to show why he must die. Verse 22, Jesus breaks the bread and he gives thanks for it as usual, just like he'd done um, when he fed the 5,000. And in the Passover meal, this was the unleavened, bre unleavened bread, so that bread with no yeast in it, the bread of remembrance. It was eaten at Passover to remember that God had rescued and redeemed his people from Egypt, to rem keep reminding them of it. And the lack of yeast in it was to recall that they had to leave in such a hurry they didn't have time to pack anything or put any yeast in the bread. And when Jesus says, this is my body, the sense is, this is my dead body. The bread is now representing that his death will redeem us, will set us free from slavery, not slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to sin and death. So that's the bread. What about the cup of wine? The cup of wine at Passover was to remember the blood of the Passover lamb that had been painted over the door frames. So remember, they painted the blood on their door frames and the angel of death passed over their house and they escaped the firstborns being killed and finally Pharaoh let them go. Well now Jesus says this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now a covenant, just unpack that a bit, a covenant in the Bible is like an unbreakable dead set contract, a deal, literally, almost literally signed in blood between man and God. And the new covenant deal Jesus is talking about is foretold in the, by the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Jesus is saying, my death is gonna guarantee you getting the promises of this new deal I'm making. And there's more. When Jesus said, says his blood is poured out for many, he's picking up on one of the servant songs from the prophet Isaiah. Uh, songs that promised a perfect Israelite. An Israelite who would, and this is uh, Isaiah 53 verse 12, who poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession, intercession for the transgressors. So all added together, Jesus is saying, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. That means, when he says that, he means that his death is a sacrificial death. It's a death in place of our own, meaning that we can be forgiven. And Jesus is sealing that promise with his own life. It's a deal where he bears the cost of winning our forgiveness and failing to live up to our side of the bargain. Now, it can all sound a bit gruesome, can't it, all this blood and sacrifice business? And over the centuries, people have often asked, why does there have to be a death to pay for sin? Why can't God just forgive? We only think death doesn't fit the bill for sin because we're so used to our sin. We're soaked in it. And we've sanitised it and justified it to ourselves so much. Well, even very loving, warm people feel wrath 
and anger sometimes for good reasons, don't we? We know at heart justice should be done. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all know we deserve some of that justice. So imagine I'd got the clips for this service mixed up and what was on display for the whole internet to see right now was a highlights package of the worst of you from the past year. I mean, I wouldn't want to look at mine myself, never mind let anyone else see it. And if we ask the question, what punishment does that deserve? How would you answer? And how should God, who knows all and sees all, hears our thoughts, and is always perfectly fairly opposed to evil, how should he answer? The account must be paid. Justice must be done. And the good news is Jesus is offering his life as payment for the justice we deserve. But this isn't the last meal on Jesus' mind. Jesus can face what he's got to face because he trusts that after death he's got a meal to look forward to. Jesus declares to his disciples, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He's saying, lads, this is the beginning of the end. But there's a new beginning that we can look forward to that will make it all worthwhile. Jesus is looking ahead to a new age when he's risen from the dead and he's returned. Returned to get rid of evil and death forever. And the way that God helps us to picture that is in another meal. Another meal. So from Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine. The best of the meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This is what the suffering and the death and the resurrection Jesus is about to go through is going to win for us. No more death. No more tears. A place at God's meal table forever. Our sin forgiven, paid for. Love for God written on our hearts, which have been made new. So to finish, the Passover meal remembered God rescuing his people from slavery to Egypt, the blood of a lamb saving their firstborns from death. Now Jesus offers his blood, his life, to rescue us from sin and death. His death is going to mark the start of a new deal, a new contract with God. And it's a deal that costs us nothing and costs Jesus everything. A deal that wins us a seat at God's table, sins forgiven. And Jesus shares all of this in a meal, something that you join in with, partake of. It's weird, isn't it, if you're invited for a meal and you sit there not eating. Well, this is Jesus' invitation to accept what he offers you, his death in place of yours. 
his promise, sworn in his own life, bought with his own life, of forgiveness and being right with God forever. So I urge you, don't be like those religious leaders who worked out just how to keep things just as they are, status quo, with minimum fuss, where change becomes the enemy and truth the casualty. And don't be like Judas, Judas, so concerned with his own agenda, so wrapped up in this world that you can't see that Jesus is giving himself for you right under your nose. And whatever it is that's stopping you caring about Jesus, the question is, is that thing taking care of you, of your life after death, of your standing before God, of your record of sin? Because Jesus is taking care of all that. So be like the woman with the perfume. Love Jesus for who he is, the king of your life. And give him what you can. Don't worry about what you can't. But give him your whole life. Because he's worth it. And he can be trusted with it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus, the Passover lamb, who gave up his life, who took our place and took the punishment we deserve so that we can live forever with you. Please help us to love Jesus for who he is. Please help all our worship and our service be for Jesus and be, come from our heart of love for him. Please help us to not worry about what we can't do, but to offer ourselves in service what we can do. Help us to give over our whole life in service of Jesus from a loving heart. Amen.